Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. Today we have with us a gentleman who is at the absolute top of his game in his field in a great, fantastic multifamily market, Chicago, Illinois. I'd say he's a top one percenter, but in, in terms of his productivity, but he's been over the years a top point oh two performer, which um, I was never a good math guy, but I think that means in, in many years he was basically bested 199 out of 200 guys in his firm nationally, just a rock star. He's the National Council Chair of Multifamily Properties for SVN International. He is Reed Bennett. Reed, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, you, you got it. Um, no, man, you, you've got... I could say you have the magic touch, but you and I both know the magic touch probably means you've just worked harder than everybody for many, many years. And then it became magical, you know, eventually after working a trillion hours would be my guess. Give me the... Reed, give me the uh, pre-real estate Reed Bennett story. <laughs> yes. How far back do you want me to go? Um, 1998, I... Uh, I, well, this is after I graduated from college and after I had taken a, a year to snowboard in for, in Breckenridge, Colorado. I came back to Chicago. I was, uh, at the time, not utilizing my degree at all. I was uh, running a personal training studio in the basement of what used to be called the LaSalle Wacker Building uh, on the corner of LaSalle and Wacker, downtown Chicago. Uh, most of my clients were either real estate brokers, owners, uh, and operators or attorneys. And so I spent my time uh, having them pay me for an hour, but just grilling them on commercial real estate and what they did. And I'd, I'd, I'd shared this uh, a couple of times, but there was one of my clients who was a multifamily broker that would come down and show me his, uh, his closing checks. He would bring the checks in before our, our session and he'd show it to me. And what I noticed about each one of the multiple checks he would show me each year was that it was usually double what I made the entire year, uh, getting up at 5.30, being down in the personal training studio and leaving at 8 o'clock at night. So, And I quickly said, if this guy can do it, the hell am I doing doing this? <laughs> so I, I quickly realized trading uh, time, you know, you could only make a certain... People are only willing to pay you a certain amount an hour. Uh, once you hit that ceiling, you're done. Where, you know, what I realized with real estate is depending on what area and avenue, there's really no ceiling to what you can can achieve uh, in the space. And I got my uh, real estate license in a week. I took a crash course. Uh, I actually took a, vac a week vacation to take the course. Got my license and uh, I believe it was 2001. Started back in the day. It was a dinosaur firm. I was the youngest by about, I would say, 30 years in my office. Uh, I was the first one to get a computer at my desk. Uh, started brokering deals uh, in 2007, affiliated with the national firm, the one that I'm at now. Uh, 2013, took over the national council chair position internationally for the company. And that's where we are today. 
that's where you are today. Uh, I think from your profile, I think you said you're a native Iowan and uh, where, where in Iowa? Well, actually, I grew up about an hour and a half outside of Chicago in a town called Woodstock, Illinois. If you've seen the movie Groundhog Day, uh, that was filmed uh, when I was in high school. Bill Murray was in, in their town and it was the biggest thing to ever hit. I went to University of Iowa, so that's where my Iowa roots uh, dug in there. But I haven't been back since, since college. You know what I love about you already is you, you, have, you have a big, generous heart because you so classily handled my complete error saying you were from Iowa when you're really not. And the way you, you said, my, my Iowa roots to make me, make me not look like the idiot that I was. Forget <laughs> it. No, I spent four fantastic years in Iowa City. I, you know, I, you know I, I loved that uh, university. It was a great time. I've, I've made friends for, for 30 years. So, hey, it's a part, it's where I lived there for four years. So I got you. That's what makes you a great sales guy too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here. What an idiot I am. Because I, I knew this. So I might go, he's from Iowa. Well, that doesn't mean you're from Iowa because you went to college <laughs> there. Anyway. Okay. Well, f- fantastic. Then you're a personal trainer, which means you're kind of a, a buff kind of dude. And then you're all these guys coming through and, 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 and they're work and they're, they're working out at like, you know, 10 in the morning to boot showing their, their, so not only are they showing you checks that are double what you made for the whole year, but you're going, well, these guys aren't even working and it's 10 in the morning. Anyway. Okay. So tell me about this. I know you're based in Chicago. Are you brokering deals uh, exclusively in Chicago or how far does the radius go out? So, um, you know, I initially started in the neighborhoods of Chicago. We were selling the courtyard buildings, the corner walk-up buildings, um, you know, the 1920 vintage through 1970 vintage deals. Yeah, I want to say 2006, we had uh, sold uh, a property for an owner in Chicago and, and got him into uh, over 200 units uh, in Northwest Indiana. And that's when I really started to understand the suburban uh, secondary and tertiary apartment market. So, you know, for the first, I would say five years of my career, I didn't even know how to underwrite a deal because it was all condo conversions. It was a condo craze here in Chicago. Um, and as I've said before, I, you know, I, when I was 27 and in this business, I literally thought I was going to be selling out of my, uh, selling every single apartment deal to condo converters. And I would sell myself out of a job. There'd be no more apartment. I truly believed there'd be no more apartment buildings left because that's how hot the condominium conversion craze was in 2005, six, seven. You know, so I, all I could figure out, all I needed to know was how big the units were, what they could be built on the back end, and what it would take to go into it in order to sell those as condos. That's all I knew. I didn't understand how to, to, to run a profit and loss statement. I didn't know what a trailing 12-month statement was. Um, didn't even care about a rent roll at that point. Uh, but then once we were, you know, selling the deals for the owners in Chicago and they still wanted to own multifamily, we brought them out into secondary and tertiary markets across the Midwest and got into apartment complexes and understanding the nuances associated with, you know, secondary and tertiary uh, apartment buildings and how they operate and where and how you have to pick the units and pick the locations based on employment drivers. And then we also got into uh, you know, affordable housing, both the low-income housing tax credit, as well as project-based Section 8 uh, in and around those markets as well. So 
no longer specific to Chicago. It's more of a broad Midwest uh, focus that we have. We track every single unit, 100 units and above across the Midwest. And uh, we also work in a number of other markets uh, within the council. We closed deals in eight states last year uh, with many of our colleagues across the country. And uh, like I say, you know, multifamily is, is it's not rocket science. So it really, as long as you understand or are working with somebody that understands the local nuance, you know, you can work on multifamily deals across the country. Are you getting the share of the listings in Chicago and then you know, exchanging guys out into these other markets? Or are you getting the listings everywhere? And what, what would characterize the bulk of the activity? So, so our, the bulk of our activity is in Midwest secondary and tertiary markets where you know, we're bringing in buyers from the coasts. We're bringing in buyers to those markets from Chicago. But we talk to every single owner that owns a deal across the Midwest that are in these markets. Uh, you know, my team and I have a, a rotation where we, we talk with all of these owners just to check in with them, see how things are going, see if there's anything we can do to help them. Uh, from an informational standpoint, uh, we track a lot of the metrics from the rent rates. Um, obviously, the mortgage rates we're sharing. We're, you know, we also track every single closing and listing. Uh, so at any point in the cycle, we can share with owners what is happening, what's going on, what the deal volume is uh, of a particular market. So we share that with them. So you know, so we we want them to think of us as top of mind when they go to make a decision uh, with their multifamily asset, whether it be buying, selling, uh, refinancing. Uh, we just you know we would like to help them in any way we can. We also have helped people with. Uh, you know, management situations. Uh, if they need a certain vendor for their property, we've helped them with that. So, I mean, we're in this for the long haul. So, if we can help a number of different multifamily owners in any regard, uh, we know that eventually it'll come back to us. And it has. I mean, there have been there have been owners that I've talked to for over ten years that we finally transact with them once they're ready to do something. What is it then? It sounds like there's something clearly specific about secondary and tertiary. Mark is, and sure. is that because and, uh, you made it clear you're doing business in eight states? Is that because in eight states, uh, and I'm assuming, and uh, you can correct me, maybe I'm wrong. I'm assuming they're probably contiguous to one another in, in in the Midwest. And is that because Chicago is the only city that is a it is a a primary market, and all the other ones just by definition are secondary and tertiary, or is there something? In addition to that, uh, well, no. The deals that we closed recently with our colleagues have been across the board, um, from El Paso, Texas, to Syracuse, New York, to you know Durham. Um, we closed the deal, uh, two deals in uh, North Dakota, South Dakota. Um, we closed the transaction in Fargo. So it it, it t- completely depends, um, you know, because we're a lot of my colleagues are sitting in. Oftentimes, secondary and tertiary markets where they are, they are jack of all trades when it comes to the asset classes. And, you know, but they tend to, uh, you know, their kids go to school with the owner of the 250 unit in their community, or they might go to church with, you know, the owner of the, you know, the 150 unit complex in their community. They just don't feel, you know, strong enough to sell that particular asset, especially on a national basis. So they bring in me and my team. 
and we collaborate with them to provide the best services for the clients across the country. So it's, it's really across the board. But when you're talking about the Midwest markets, um, you know, Chicago is, is the biggest market. And then, you know, a lot of the stuff that we work on in Illinois is probably two hours away from Chicago. I see. And because that- we, have, we have clients that are chasing yield. So Chicago is a, is a primary market. Everybody is, you know, the, the cap rates have been, you know, compressed. A lot of people want to come into the market. And so um, we have many clients that will chase yield and go into, you know, further and further out. So, you know, we would, we would sell a deal in Chicago where we would have 27 offers. That means 26 people didn't get it, right? So then that, those 26 groups they either have to continue to compete in a primary market like Chicago, or they can move out to a suburban market you know, closer in, but then that got very hot and almost hotter than uh, downtown Chicago. So then they had to move out further. Um, so, you know, we, kept, we keep pushing out in rings ourselves because by the time we get out to a market, you know, like an, an hour and a half away, we, you know, there's, there's a market called Rockford, Illinois. It's the third largest city in Illinois. We sold 27 apartment buildings in that market and complexes. And then all of a sudden, a lot of competition and the brokers start coming in there. So then we just you know, and then it gets bid up and the prices double. And so then our, our clients want to move to a different market. So we moved to an area like the Quad Cities on the border of Iowa and Illinois, or we moved down to the Peoria markets further south. Um, so that's what we're doing in the Midwest. Okay, thank you. Do you oversee a team and also do your own deals? Uh, what, what's the day-to-day life of Mr. Reed Bennett? Sure. Um, yeah, we, we have our own team here in Chicago that we we focus on talking to and tracking every single owner in the market. Uh, we have our own listings that we work on independently as a team and then, uh, you know, partner up with some of our other colleagues around the country, deal dependent. But a majority of our business personally is in the Midwestern markets, um, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Iowa. And then are you, what is your title? So my, my title is National Council Chair of Multifamily Properties for SVN okay. International. The, the same thing I read at the top of this podcast, yes. uh, yeah. coincidentally enough. Okay. All right. I thought that the way that was, it felt like you were head of something different in my mind, but it's a, it's, it's a title of what you do in the brokerage thing. So again... Uh, egg on my face. Okay. No, no. I mean, my 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 title doesn't matter. I just, I help owners and operators uh, both purchase and sell apartment buildings. Let me ask my question in another way. What I'm really trying to get at, um, just out of my personal curiosity, is: Are you effectively other industries would call the title, you know, a director of sales, where you've got guys and women reporting up to you? Is that your role? And if it is, and or do you also do your own deals? I'm trying to just drill down on you know what your core responsibility is. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a team here in the Chicago market, you know, that I have a business partner and the two of us uh, run, okay. run the team here uh, of our own book of business. Yes. Okay, I got it. That helps. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and then. In terms of going out to like secondary and tertiary markets, and you explained that. You know, you, you, you basically, you get active in, in one of those and then all of a sudden it becomes hot and competitive too. I'm just curious. I mean, from, from my view of it, you know, having talked to, you know, many, many people, as you could imagine over the last few years, it seems like 
every rock has been overturned. There's no secrets. And unless it's just a market you don't want to be in, it seems like, and again, things are, things are starting to change a little bit as interest rates have gone up and things have gotten crazy over the last year. But are there, I guess, what are the yields in uh, examples of secondary and tertiary? And, tertiary? and there's probably a different answer for secondary and tertiary too, but just generally what's the overview of the market in terms of yield? Well, the, the interesting thing is over the last couple of years, the delta between the yield on the secondary and tertiary markets versus the primary has, has narrowed drastically because people, you know, a ma- majority of the deals that transact, over 67% in the Midwest are taking place across state border. So, you know, especially in the informational age of today, you can ramp up or I can ramp up on a particular multifamily market within about two hours, I can understand the metrics, what's going on, what's traded, who's, you know, who are the big players in a, in a particular market, uh, what the price per unit is, the cap rates, uh, and, and multiple other, you know, sanity metrics that we talk about. You can find that within a matter of hours rather than taking weeks and weeks to learn this. So, as long as you, you know, groups can, can achieve a certain amount of scale from a management perspective in a market, anybody can enter any kind of a market. So the, you know, the, the geographic walls are, you know, have been coming down pretty quickly over the past few years. So interesting. Okay, so you're saying that 67% of deals are acquired by people that don't live in that state. Correct. Wow, what was that like? fives and or 10 years ago? I'd have to go back and look at, at the data that we track, but you know, probably 10 years ago, it was at, at least 10% less than that. So it was you know, mostly, you know, you'd play in your own backyard. You know, you had a management team, you know, and, and we still talk to owners today that, you know, they're only willing to look as far as their current management team on the ground can operate. So, you know, they'll buy smaller deals if it's, you know, within a mile of the property where they can have the same group operating that. Um, But if somebody is going to be entering a new market, we're typically seeing groups want to deal with no less than a 250-unit apartment complex. Right. So it's hard to manage small buildings with any degree of efficiency. Are you a principal in any stuff? Do you, do you buy any of your own stuff or, or are you, 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 are you uh, too smart for that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm smart enough for that. Uh, we, we, we have invested with a number of our clients. Uh, you know, the, the first deal we ever invested in uh, was in 2008 when, you know, I'll never forget the deal. It was a 144-unit deal. It was 18 buildings. Uh, and in that period, uh, the, 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 the actual original developer had the property and he tried to convert the 18th building into a condo. And, but this was in a you know, deep secondary, almost a tertiary market. And it was a very soft market for condo conversions. But what he did was he took those units and since he couldn't sell them as individual condos, he put them back on the rental market for $150 more than the, than the other 17 buildings. 
And so we asked him, well, what did you, what exactly did you do? And he said, I just changed some fixtures and up, upgraded the appliances from the white package to the black package appliances. If you're, you know, remember the difference of those. And so what we said was, you know, and, and we had a buyer that was interested in it. But while we were in the due diligence, uh, his main investor had passed. So he said, hey, I'm out. Um, I, you know, I can't take this deal down. And we said, look, look we believe in this one. What do you need? And, he, and the number was $1,560,000. So we raised it between you know, friends and family just to help him do that and just became a part of that deal as, as investors. We didn't have any, uh, any input into how he ran the deal, but we invested. I, in fact, I invested some of my mom's money. She had inherited you know, a couple shekels uh, when my grandfather passed. So we put that in there and that was the first entree into being like a limited partner. We, I, I've only invested as a limited partner with, with clients along the way and never in a competing market. Where's that property? Just out of curiosity. That one actually was in Rockford before we ever were in Rockford selling. That's what opened my eyes to that market, um, understanding that. Uh, a couple of the other deals, we've, you know, we've been invested in Texas. We've been invested up in Wisconsin um, with some other deals uh, with clients of ours. What percentage of your business would you say is uh, with syndicators? I would say as far as selling deals to them or investing with them. No, well, not as an LP, but okay. e- either getting the listing and selling the building or buying on behalf of a client either way. Probably 10%. Okay. So it's, a, so it's a small. Very small. Um, you know, with, with that, because a majority of the deal that we've sold, you know, at least in my career, has, has been for smaller, you know, mom and pop groups, uh, maybe a couple partners that put it together with their own funds. That's who we were dealing with. On the buy side, there were so many different syndicators that popped up over the last five years. In less, and it was so competitive. A lot of the syndicators weren't offering, you know, a million dollars hard day one, you know, with no due diligence. But but a lot of the, you know, buyers in the market were doing that. So we just, I, I've just never had much success selling to syndication groups. Explain that to me again. You said you said they don't have a, a million hard. To explain that again to me. So what what happened in in 2021 and 2022, which was pretty unprecedented was, you know, a lot of the groups to, to outbid uh, a lot of the multiple bid situations were offering non-refundable hard earnest money day one if their contract was accepted. Uh, and in many cases, it was a million dollars hard earnest money day one. And so a lot of the syndicators that we, we dealt with did not have that kind of a deep pocket in order to deal with uh, purchasing an asset like that. And then your, I think you said you kind of, any building a hundred units or more is kind of what you're tracking. And I'm wondering what percentage of your transactions are a hundred units or more. I would say, I mean, th- this is also taking into consideration portfolios where we, where we couple a number of deals together so we can get that scale in the 200 plus unit range. Um, but I would say, you know, 70% of what we do is, is in that realm. What a beautiful... I mean, sometimes we're selling off deals that are, that are smaller for owners that are looking to, to grow their portfolio a little larger. Uh, what a brilliant way that you guys have positioned yourself and created a niche in that 
and that uh, size and et cetera. Really, really smart. What's vintage of, of it's probably all over the uh, all over the map, but I ask anyway, what vintage, what class or or you, you trading mostly in? You know, we're probably, I would say a majority of the deals that we sell are nineteen. 19- 70s through early 2000s vintage. We like to deal with class B and C product, especially when we're on the the affordable side. Um, Usually they're past the 15-year initial compliance period. Um, So they're 15 to 30 years old at at best. Um, We don't really get in the mix with a lot of the class A downtown high-rise. And we just found our niche in that I would say five to twenty-five million dollar range, and then I've heard some Class C is kind of holding steady. I've heard a lot of Class C is having a challenge right now, uh, just because those are the renters most likely to be really most impacted by you know high gas prices, high food prices, inflation overall. So, so there are a number of C properties struggling with delinquencies and occupancy, et cetera. What are you seeing? Yeah, I would say, you know, the interesting thing about that is those were the deals, the class C and the the class B minus, let's call it, were the ones that we've seen multiple double digit increases, even on the renters that were, you know, re-signing and staying on. And that was, that was where the, the game was really being played as far as the, the value add going in, updating the units, um, you know, adding a newer uh, appliance package, and then increasing the rents. Because what was happening was, it's a lot different than the 2008 market where, you know, or 2006, 7, 8 market where anybody that had a uh, somewhat of a pulse could get a, uh, a mortgage to buy a condo or a home. That's not been the case with this this current cycle. So. Um, and there's a, there's a number of reasons we can go into about why that's happening. So I would agree with you that the tenants that are in the, the, the rent by necessity or the workforce housing, uh, whatever you want to call it, they're the ones that are most affected by the inflationary pressures, the cost of milk and eggs and gas, definitely. But the thing is, those were the units that the rents, I think, have accelerated the, the fastest. And that's why we're at a point right now where, you know, now that there are no longer just government hand free money that was going on during the COVID period, that, that was another thing that boosted everybody. Everybody had additional money to spend and, and could afford those drastic increases. Now that that is at the end, we are seeing issues where groups trying to continue to push rents have run into a, a bit of a wall, it's, you know, especially when you're talking about the uh, the, the tenants that have had a um, a significant amount of their in- income is going towards rent. We're seeing some tenants are at the fifty percent mark, which is not, uh, you know, it's not a sustainable mark, you know, for for tenants to be at. In, in terms of the fifty percent of their income is rent, correct? Yeah, right. Does not work. Um, you were saying that it's, but it's not where things were in 08 for a number of reasons. Sure. Uh, and that piqued my curiosity. Um, maybe you could speak to that. 
So in 2008, the vast majority of the distress in the multifamily space was occupancies. And a lot of the occupancies dwindled because lenders, and my brother was a a mortgage broker during that time and still is, but during that time when he was working for a company before he had his own company, he would bring in uh, documentation about the uh, borrower's income. And his boss is like, why are you submitting this? Now I have to verify it. It was no doc loans back in those days. If you recall that. So yes, you I would do. Submit, yeah, you would submit a no-doc loan, meaning you don't have to justify why you could afford this loan. And so every, you know, not every, but many of the apartment renters moved into homeownership when they had no, you know, no reason or, or no justification to qualify for that loan. And so there was a mass exodus out of the apartment units into home ownership, whether it be a condominium that they were purchasing or a home. Um, so that was, one of the, that was one of the key differences that I see from that market to this market, where uh, renters are almost being forced because of the current home situation across the country to remain renters. Got it. And so you think, um, to take a half a step back, you think maybe a lot of the challenges are with with investors, landlords that maybe push the envelope really high because they could, there was a lot of stimulus money still out there and then things were fairly robust. You didn't have the inflation you're having now. It's now it's just a matter of those rents contracting back to maybe what market was a few, three, four, five years ago. You got it. Yeah. Right on. Makes sense. Make Makes sense. Are there any markets, if you were to personally go out, read and go, I'm going to go out and buy a hundred unit market. What would you say are in the, in the Midwest would be markets that you think maybe still have a lot of runway and maybe haven't been combed over as much as maybe some other ones? <laughs> That's a great question because, you know, the, the markets that, that you would even think about not being combed over have been combed over. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, I'm still I'm still very bullish on the Midwestern markets. We don't have these you know these huge swings that you see on the coasts or in the Sun Belt region uh, from an appreciation standpoint. You know, we're we're by no means uh, you know insulated like by recession, but you know we're we're a Midwest is a cash flow area. Uh, if you're buying in these areas that you know you're cash flowing from uh, you know day one, we're not we're not betting on appreciation in the midwestern markets to a certain extent. I mean, maybe there there might be areas in Chicago that you might bet on it or incorporate that into your underwriting, but a majority of the time it's a cash flow market uh, in the Midwest. I mean, I I like the Quad Cities, which are you know the four cities right on the border of Illinois and Iowa. You know, I I still like. Markets like the Peoria market down in the middle of uh, Illinois. Uh, I like Big Ten markets. Uh, you know, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, although that became a bit, such a, a hot market at that point, you know, there might be deals to be had outside of the Milwaukee market. There might be deals, um, you know, outside of Cleveland. You know, right when you're on on a cusp where you're not a pioneer in the market. 
where you're going, you know, because a, a lot of groups kept pushing out and pushing out and pushing out. Um, those are going to be the first markets to have the the, the first contraction when uh, you know these prices reset. So I would say as long as you have employment drivers, I love the you know a lot of the Big Ten university uh, across the Midwest. I, you know I enjoy those markets as well. If you have a capital like Madison, you know Madison uh, enjoys being a Big Ten university and the capital. You know, it's the same thing with uh, you know Michigan State. Uh, you know, that's that's you're in the capital there as well. So those types of areas, I you know, I love. Are you seeing you know that you, you, there's a lot of press uh, in the last couple of years about reshoring, and and as it pertains to the Midwest, are you seeing a lot of that, or is it still in incipient stages? When you're talking about reshoring, what do you say? So, yeah, good question. So, manufacturing coming back to the United States. Yeah, you know it's interesting because one of our markets we have a Chrysler plant that just shuttered, uh, and they have not reopened. They were going to reopen for electric vehicles. It has not happened yet, um, and that was you know that was a, a significant driver in the market we're working. But you know, and especially with the big three, you know, in, in strike at this point, I don't know what that's going to do across the Midwest for the, for the various plants as well. So I'd just be leery of any secondary or tertiary market that relies more than 60% or maybe even more than 50% uh, on a particular uh, employment driver. 50% might even be high. Uh-huh. Because if that, you know, if that, if that employment person picks up and moves to Texas, which we've had, you know, that's going to be a, a significant hit to a, to a secondary or tertiary market. Words well spoken. What, what would you say for the years of experience doing what you've done, what would you say are key lessons you've learned? So the, the lessons I've learned is to try to not have seven-year amnesia. I had heard a, um, an economist say that's what lenders have. Uh, they forget what happened seven years ago. Uh, as things start to progress, and um, you know, I, I think rappers would say, "Don't get high on your own supply." <laughs> you know, so it, it, you don't you don't feed into you know that that a certain market is going to just continue to to go up. You know, in two thousand seven, you know, I'll never. It was my it was my first really large up market, right? Everything was, you know, the prices were going sky high. People weren't figuring out how it was happening. I thought, you know, if I don't get in now, you know, I am, you know, it's going to take me forever to get into this real estate market. I'm lucky I didn't at that point from an ownership standpoint, because as as you know, what happened, uh, 09, 10, um, I would just say, you know, you, you have to, if you're looking at deals from an acquisition perspective, it has to make sense day one and it has to make sense with the current debt. And it's even better if it makes sense when the current debt is higher <laughs> um, as far as the rates, because I, I, I saw more multimillionaires made when the rents went or the, the rates went from, you know, seven and a half to, you know, 8% down to four and three. Just by cash out refinances, it was incredible. Yeah, so, it was incredible times. You know, there's 1.5 trillion dollars of of loan maturities in the next 
uh, through 2025, and it's almost 2024. We're in October of 23. Uh, in in big markets, um, you had just so much over leveraged. I can't put it any other way. Bridge debt, and yep. so a lot of people believe there's no other outcome to this other than massive distress. Owners are going to have to take a loss. Maybe lenders will have to take a loss. And it's going to be a great time to be an acquirer. I guess, how does that, what does that look like for some of the markets you, you know, you guys are active in, like, like we're talking about smaller, secondary, tertiary, more conservative, Midwest, Midwestern markets, not as volatile as, you know, Florida, Texas, you know, Nashville. We all know the markets, Atlanta that went absolutely Zulu over the last five years. Sure. Well, I, I, I do think that is going to present a number of opportunities because you're, you know, just what you said with that, with that amount of debt coming due, that was probably three, even sub 3% interest rates when they're tripling or quadrupling. Um, when, you know, owners, during that period were already aggressive with their with their underwriting where they were assuming additional increases to the income um, and maybe flat or two or three percent increases to their expenses it's a it's a perfect storm for a lot of you know negative producing deals so I would say it's there's not blood in the water at this point but there's definitely a trickle at the, you know at this point and I don't think I don't think anybody can time the bottom of it, and I don't think it's a it's a good practice to do that. Again, if you can find a deal that cash flows well today with conservative underwriting, you know you need to be buying those opportunities as they present themselves. If you can find those, uh, the challenge is finding those in this market because I think it's going to be another eight months before a lot of the stuff that you're talking about with the short term bridge debt and the loan maturities really come to the market and people are going to be forced to address the issues with those. And, and, you know, and what I'm also you know, telling certain sellers now, if they are in fact interested in selling or need to sell for some reason, there's still a lot of capital chasing these deals. The sellers need to understand that while uh, March of 2022 was the absolute peak volume and pricing in the market, it was ridiculousness pricing. So if you can still achieve 15 or 20% less than it was at the peak of ridiculousness, you're getting a damn good deal selling your property right now. But I would do that if you're a seller, because I have a few people saying, I'm just going to wait, you know, I'm going to tidy up a few things and sell next year. I'd be looking to sell now because when the distressed, the first few distressed sales start closing, that sets the new comp market for a lot of the appraisers out there. So your next door neighbor, if you, you think your property is worth $180,000 a unit and your next door neighbor sells for $60,000 a unit because they're, they're distressed and underwater, that's going to be the comp that the appraisers are picking up when they go to evaluate your deal, both on a refinance basis and, an, and a, a sale basis. So unless you're planning to hold like... so what we. <laughs> You know how many conversations I had, Roger, with owners that were saying, you know, three years ago, yeah, maybe I'll sell in, in two years. We're saying, look, unless you are planning on holding for at least 10, you'll be fine if you hold for 10. 
But unless you are planning on holding for at least 10, if you're not selling right now, you are basically buying your deal at this at a 2.5% cap rate. So what? Uh, tell me again what you think. Uh, and I know there's just so little activity right now, but... In, in, in the Midwestern markets, what do you think prices are compared to, and let's call it class B, uh, minus and C, uh, what are prices now compared to March 2022? I would say they're 20, 27 to about 35% below, depending on where you are and what kind of product and what needs to happen with that deal. Okay. And, and your point is that they're going to, there's a very good chance they're going to go lower. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, man, that's those are those are big, 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 big words. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, math is math, right? Nobody's bigger than math. Sure. Uh, what a fantastic conversation, Reed. How does one get a hold of you if they want to buy in your markets or if they're a seller? Well, they can reach out to me. Any kind of me. I mean, I you, I can give you my cell number, my uh, my email. You can also find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I think that's where we connected. So. My cell number is 773-251-7342. My email is reed.bennett at svn.com. Um, I can send that to you if you have notes for the show as well. Got it. And if they call and do a deal with you, I typically get 10%. So I think I'll that's I'll give you pretty- 15. How's that? <laughs> 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 okay. Reed, I hope to do uh, this with you uh, at some point in the future. Keep up the great work and um, very interesting conversation. I totally, totally appreciate it. All right, Roger. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. All right.